I'm going to make it easy for you. You were jealous. You had a fight. He fell. He hit his head. It was an accident. But his girl is a witness. So you had to shut her up. You don't have the guts to harm her, but you got the money to keep her mouth shut. Yes or no? No! Who is she? And don't give me that crap about your sister because you don't have a sister. I'll tell you... I'll tell you the truth. Good. What's her name? Catherine. Catherine who? She's my daughter. I said I want the truth. She's my sister. She's my daughter. My sister, my daughter. I said I want the truth. She's my sister and my daughter. Episode 80 of the Cult of Matt and Mark Cult Film Review Podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Mark. And make sure to visit our blog at cultfilmreview.blogspot.com or shoot us an email at cultfilmreview at gmail.com and a little self-promotion bit. Uh, go check out Mask Books, M-A-S-Q-U-E, for news about my upcoming novel, Nova Byzantium. Uh, you can get release dates and then when it shows up, you can link through it and uh, buy my book. So uh, that's probably going to come up in October. Uh, show news, little show news. Uh, not really any show. I did have a question about mass books. Have you just talked to any of the other authors being published by them? No, I haven't. You've been busy working on your fifth or, or your fourth. Yeah. Yeah, I'm confused. Where are you at? No, uh, I don't know. My fourth, I think. What fifth, fourth, fifth, fifth book, yeah. I guess I would be writing. Uh, so no, I haven't really gotten around to it. I wrote some, uh, cover art notes, uh, cover art being sort of a uh, misnomer for the digital publishing. Why does it mean? Because there's still a photo, right? Or is it, what do you mean? It's a photo illustration? They still put a cover on it. And to be honest, the covers are probably as needed uh, as ever in the digital market as they are in a bookstore. Uh, so to catch the, hot, the pretty eye. important, especially in the sci-fi fantasy. It also gives them, gives the potential reader a sense of professionalism about the work. Like if it has a decent cover, it looks like a lot mm-hmm. of time went into it. Uh, there's probably some extra attention paid to that, that novel. Or if it's sort to, of arty, maybe, you know, it's a higher brow book, right? You, yeah. I don't know. I, I'm not sure. But uh, so, you mm-hmm. know, I took it seriously. So and, on your notes, do you, did you ask for big breasts or humongous garbanzos? I just, you know, I said metal bikinis and lizard men. That's that was pretty much it. It was. Oh, pretty you didn't go with cat men. You went with lizard men. I like lizard men better, to be honest. I'm, I'm, right, I'm a little fair enough. Tired of the cat men. Lizard so. men versus cat men. There's your there's yeah. your fifth book. That's a well, series. If I ever heard about it. Uh, a little show news. Mark and I met in the flesh on Friday to go see Pacific oh, Rim. Did we ever? And paid probably the most I've ever paid for a movie ticket at eighteen dollars and what was it fifty cents? Eighteen twenty-five. They needed the ex- they didn't they needed the extra two bits. <laughs> right. 
that extra quarter uh, went for you know service fees for uh, sterilizing the three three D glasses. I'm sure. Not only that, but we also paid like twelve dollars each for popcorn and oh. uh, and soda, so we could visit the bathroom. I think you beat me on bathroom trips. Well, the problem was is the the popcorn was so greasy, my hands yeah. greased up, and it just got really disgusting. And so then I had to go wash them a few times. So that was part of that trip. Yeah, I got grease all over one of my lenses. It was a hell. It was a bitch to get off Ooh. of the 3D glasses. Oh Those God. Were, yeah, I was really disappointed. They've really made the 3D glasses a lot cheaper since I went last time. Well, mine didn't fit on my head right. They kind of canted out, like they sort of pushed out from my nose. And so I had to like tilt them weirdly on my head. Yeah, mine. Uh, they sat. There was a. There was sort of a, a gap that was sort of a wedge shape between the the, the lens of the 3D and the lens of my glasses. I ended up getting a lot of uh, of reflections in my periphery from the. Yeah, film. I got it that dis- too. It's really distracting. It sort of pissed me off. You almost feel like it might be worth just getting a pair, getting some disposable uh, contacts to throw in for 3D movies. Contacts. Might be worth it. Oh, just yeah. So you don't get those there. reflections. You can just wear the glasses straight up. Yeah. Uh, good movie. I enjoyed it. I think we both enjoyed it. We uh, thought Guillermo del Toro did sort of a nice, I guess, he tried to insert the human element and characters as much as possible in a robots versus sea monsters movie. And uh, I think he did a good job. There's a really good movie podcast, if, if anybody ever has a chance to uh, listen to it. It's called the Greatest Movie Ever. And uh, they do they do sort of movies from our sensibilities. And they really enjoyed it. Uh, they made some salient points about it that it really is a movie that evokes some of the wonder and joy of childhood. And uh, beyond that, there's not much else to the movie. It's a pretty skeleton plot and some uh, some rather shallow dialogue and a lot of archetypes being thrown around of characters. Yeah, but yeah. if you can't, you really have to. It has to hit you in that childlike joy department. With it hit both of them. I mean, I was just smiling and clapping. It's always fun seeing a sea monster uh, destroy Asian city like a la Godzilla. It's always a good time. I, I don't think you can have a bad time watching that, really. But the giant robots was just was just it just tickled me. And you know, if you were going to watch the movie and that doesn't tickle you, then the movie's going to suck for you. Yeah, you, you got to have some. Uh, I would. Uh, it's a, it was a fueled by nostalgia a bit. Yeah, uh, just just yeah. just that. You know, fun. Uh, it's a trope. Obviously, it's it's mm-hmm. it's quite a significant trope, and uh, we all, most of us, grew up watching Godzilla movies, and we've even reviewed Godzilla. So, yeah, you know, yeah, we did Gojira, which yeah. was pretty decent. I thought, I thought the CG was was pretty spectacular. I think uh, Guillermo del Toro is kind of one of the masters of that art. He's figured out a way to make it work without going Michael Bay Transformers. Uh, he's, I don't know if that makes any sense. Well, you know what the thing is a lot in the animation there, they held a lot of shots longer than a Michael Bay would. And I think that makes it even more difficult to do the animation because you got your brain has got longer and longer to, to define it as a bunch of fakery. And so you have to be even more careful with your animation because you hold shots. So the fights were pretty simple. And I didn't with some of this Michael Bay super actiony movies. You get to the point where you don't know what the fuck is going on. You just see stuff flying and flipping, oh, yeah. and close ups right. of this and that, and things getting smashed. And you can't keep a sort of a big image. They never stand back and show you a uh, an establishing shot for these fights. 
And I thought the fight choreography between the giant robots and the uh, and the kaiju, and the sea moss, yeah, the the kaiju, the kaiju, and uh, the uh, what do they call the robots? The Jägermeisters. The Jägers. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought I thought just the way the shots were spliced together, so you could follow these uh, sort of basically martial art fights. Right. All right. So uh, for our movie this week, there's no robots or sea monsters. Uh, Chinatown, which is a certifiable classic uh, plot rundown with a suspicious porcelain skin femme fatale played by Faye Dunaway, bankrolling his snooping, private eye J.J. Gitz, played by Jack Nicholson, uncovers intricate, dirty dealings in the Los Angeles waterworks and gets his nose slashed for his trouble. Meanwhile, his financier harbors a nasty family secret. Director Roman Polanski reimagines 1930s Los Angeles with an onion-like story that reveals itself one complex layer at a time in this classic neo-noir. So I don't want to get into... Roman Polanski two bit. I did a bit of too too bit too much. I did a bit of reading. Uh, last podcast, I alluded to his uh, legal troubles with his uh, sexual indiscretion. This movie is made before that, but after. I mean, he had a tough. He had a tough. Life. Yeah, he had a really. He probably had about the <laughs> shittiest childhood a kid could have. I think. Yeah, it was pretty uh, he's bad. A, he was a Holocaust survivor. Uh, escaped the Polish ghettos and was taken in by. Catholics, I guess, during the Nazi occupation, and that's how he survived. Uh, he also was married to, I think he was married to Sharon Tate, yep. who was killed by the Manson freaks. Uh, A few years in, before he made this movie, yeah. Yeah, and she was pregnant with his child at the time. So, uh, you know. I, and his mother was killed in a concentration camp in World his, War II. His dad survived. Right. Yeah, so oh. I mean, I, I does that does that is that uh, give you pass to go? Uh, yeah, you get you get a fuck one thirteen year old if you survive a concentration. That's wow. That's funny how life works. You get these little rewards for trauma. I think Polanski's a man that knows darkness. Yeah, and, uh, he he's does. Familiar with the darkness that's inside of him. That in a lot of ways, a lot of us aren't familiar with that. And uh, so he had to face it. So I think that's maybe what gives him some of the depth of understanding of his characters and his direction, that he can really get into the head of the darkness within his own characters, which I think that most of us soft, doughy, middle-class white boys just can't do. No, uh, we don't have anything comparable experience-wise to match up to uh, his life experience. Again, not it's not uh, – it, there's no scale – for uh how you were treated is equal like you can go ahead and commit a crime and uh you know you had a rough childhood go ahead there's no scale of course there's a scale there's a path well he's he's got a huge pass because of his directing and there's i don't don't see where you say there's no such thing as a scale of course there is we judge everybody on a scale we we weigh the pros and cons and uh we hate them more or less depending on those okay well the fact that he got away with a a sex crime isn't really evening out his past trauma. It's it's uh, outweighed by his movie directing talent. So yeah, that's speak. that's mostly where he's given a pass. Yeah, uh, that he directed some movies. Plus, he did he did he was sent into some jail time and did serve some jail time. 
for the, uh, well, and then for yeah, the but then he managed to flee the country, and I don't know the details. Well, yeah, of because that. they were going to try to change his sentencing using some sort of uh, procedural error in his in his processing to give him more time. Right. Well, yeah, and he, he has friends high in high places. Uh, I think well, nothing's, one, nothing's better than friends in high places. They come in really handy. I think at one time when he was sequestered in Switzerland, uh, waiting like an Interpol extradition review to the U.S. for that crime, I think even Sarkozy stood up to the plate and made a uh, case for not doing that uh, because his wife was sort of Sarkozy's wife who like dated Mick Jagger and was sort of a I don't know uh, Hollywood groupie in a way uh, made a, lobbied for him to stick around in Europe and not yeah. be extradited. So when you got like the president of France weighing in on on uh, your behalf, then it's pretty hard to you know put the screws to you. Well, I totally agree with that. I think it'd be stupid to bring him back and try to put him in jail for for that uh, that. Rape. Well, he's ancient now. <laughs> so it's, it's really pointless. People just yeah. love their vengeance. They get they get all wet thinking about it. Oh, I know. Yeah, we kind of live on that sort of the mob mentality, the lynching mentality. You know, we just like to see people get theirs. So, mm-hmm. anyway, to Chinatown, uh, people have remarked that it has probably one of the most perfect screenplays in all of movie history. Uh, true? Not true? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's an old, it's a pretty decent screenplay. It's got some nice twists. Um, you know, really quite honest with you, it doesn't have a lot of really great dialogue in it. I mean, there's some nice bits and pieces, but I was going through looking for, you know, some conversations, which I thought were really great. And I ended up going with one of the heavier ones. Um, but you know, maybe it is that, uh, Jack Nicholson's performance is serviceable. I don't think it's, uh, extremely great performance. He sort of, uh, just sort of bowls his way through some of the dialogue scenes with, 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 I mean, just looking at him really closely. Um, I wonder if another actor would have made this film even better, but, uh, well, I, I think what stood out for me in, in the movie with regard to the writing, well, for starters, the plot, uh, doesn't have any holes in it. It's, it's pretty airtight. There, there is some, there is, there's a couple holes that I want to talk about, but go ahead. Well, I, I think I know what you're going to bring up, but, uh, it's a tight plot. It yeah. has it has layers to it. Uh, I'd say it's it's, it's biggest. Like an onion. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, Boy, where did that? That is some deep insight by the guy who made the summary for this. I think movie. it came to me in a dream. No, wait a minute. No, it was just the review I just read. That's where it came. Uh, uh, it has layers to it, but I think where it wins is its timing. Like the timing and the dialogue. The it's it's pretty sparse. The, the dialogue is only delivered when it needs to be delivered. There's yeah. no Quentin Tarantino esque uh, musings on 30s pop culture or whatever. It, it's just really tight. Like everything yeah. is in there for a reason. Uh, there's nothing superfluous. Uh, it just gets to the heart of the matter. There's lots of nice, quiet sequences where there's no dialogue that uh, evoke and, uh, you know, uh, deliver or reveal. Uh, like that when he's out there on the cliffs and he sees the water being diverted into the ocean. Uh, you know, there's just some real nice kind of almost Hitchcock-like scenes that 
are in this film and how those were written in the screenplay. I'm not really sure, but uh, I, I liked it. I, I thought it was really tight. Everything was very tight. And I always like tight plots that are multi-layered. I think that's extremely hard to do. And to, you know, layer those themes up, which this movie has so many themes going on, but yet doesn't really let any spin out in a cul-de-sac too much. Uh, it's, I don't know. I, I can see that, why that's, 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 that comment about this film being the one of the, having one of the greatest screenplays in cinematic history is somewhat true. Yeah, I guess I don't really know enough, but I, I do like your insight where it's sort of dark. It deals with the same subject matter, but it has an economy of dialogue that uh, uh, Quarantino is unable to achieve in his movies. Well, yeah, and they're going for different things. I mean, yeah. Quentin Tarantino would never would never make this film. Quentin Tarantino is sort of like an arena rock uh, guitarist. You know, he likes to solo every now and then. Oh, where, yeah. every now and then. Yeah, where uh, Chinatown is more of like a sort of a punk rock act, just, you know, going for succinct, concise messaging. Yeah. You know? Three and so a half what, minute song. So the plot holes, you said there's plot holes, and maybe I missed them or I, I overlooked them. Well, there's a couple of, things that confuse me a little bit. Maybe you can uh, shed some light on him. Uh, one is about uh, the relationship between uh, Mr. Mul- Mulray and uh, the girl at the beginning of the film, who I guess we realize is, um, what's her name? Spoilers. Yeah, yeah but and we always do spoilers. Uh, I forget. She's not listed in the uh, character I don't remember here. what her name is. Um, She's hardly in the movie, so it almost doesn't matter. Yeah, is that the same girl that... Uh, <clears throat> That uh, Giddes is taking photos of from that rooftop? Yeah, I thought. I mean, isn't that the case? It's, it's not really super clear. Uh, but the, the the scandal is this that he was hugging somebody and giving them a peck on the cheek is the scandal. Well, Mr. Mulray. You know, I guess that beginning part is a, is a bit muddled. And it, it did take, I think I may have just sort of swept it under the rug as the plot got rolling later on in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. Well, they're trying to set up uh, Mulray because he was standing in the way of the water development project of Cross. Yeah. So Noah Noah Cross's idea was he's going to use his that girl who's the daughter of of Mulray's wife, Mrs. Mulray's, and that the fact that it's sort of a secret daughter, and he has her put up at, at a. A, a nice little apartment in town. He goes by and sees her every once in a while. So Noah's idea is that he's going to send Giddis over there to take some photos of them, him just hugging her like a do- of, hu- like a father would a daughter, because basically he raised her as his daughter. Right. Giddis, I mean, uh, Mulray did. And then those photos are going to be interpreted by the media as this this prominent figure in the L.A. community as have stepping out on his wife. I, I guess that's it. To discredit but, him. Yeah, and but, th- but that I was his quite, idea, right? But then there's then he's murdered by uh, Cross. But that murder, uh, a pat, uh, like murder of passion, it wasn't. It didn't seem premeditated. Why would he have done the murder for starters if it was premeditated? Oh, well, no, no. I think that. Uh, well, it just seems like a little dangerous from um, Noah Cross's position. That he would make this daughter, which was the product of his rape of his daughter, uh, part of a scheme to um, 
to discredit uh, Mulray, Mr. Mulray. I was just sort of surprised by it, that he would use a skeleton in his closet to create a false skeleton in Mulray's closet. just seems a little dangerous to me. It does. It, it seems, seems like it'd be like... better to hire some woman to seduce Mr. Mulray. Well, That's okay. It just, it just for... seems, it seems dangerous. Now, Cross is a man who's not afraid to take risks. And that's one of well, the reasons he's so successful. And I guess it works. It just seems it seems really dangerous. Now, I guess that's maybe goes to say something about how truly dangerous Cross is. That he'll use his own skeleton to fuck somebody else over. Well, I guess also, yeah, no, I'm with you. I, I think that uh, Mulray seems like a man of principle. He won't build the dam because it's uh, too dangerous. And... If he doesn't care about the scheming of Cross to uh, expand the city and own all the land that's going to be incorporated, so he can sell it at a huge profit. Which is wouldn't wouldn't Mulray know about that daughter if he has to secretly visit her? In her yeah, Mulray knows the whole story. Yeah, yeah, because exactly. he protected because he protected uh, Evelyn after she ran away. Because I guess he knew, sort of knew what was going on because he and Cross were really close because they were both bigwigs in water development and developing right. the city of Los Angeles. And so he knew, he knew that his business partner basically had done something terrible. And he was sort of a man of principle. And he said, you know, if my business partner has no ability to care for his daughter, then he'll step in and do it. And well, and Cross played by a diabolical John Houston in the film. Oh, that's a great performance. Great, great performance. Uh, but, okay, the second thing then. So I'm oh, okay with sorry. his daughter thing because now I'm sort of interpreting as Cross is willing to do anything. Well, I just wanted to say something about the Noah Cross character played by John Huston. There's that scene where uh, Gitz, uh, Jake Gitz, played by Jack Nicholson, uh, basically lays, it, lays out the, the truth in front of him and says, well, you fucked your daughter and created this child and blah 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 you know all his crimes and well, you can see to, if you want to talk the about blithe that disregard that he has for that truth he, he says oh well you can tell me the truth but you're never going to get away with it you're never going to go anywhere with it and it's funny how he he doesn't look worried he doesn't look shocked he's just like oh you know i'll take i'll sweep this one under the rug like i'll sweep you under the rug uh, it's pretty crazy okay well let's let's talk about that then i had this this is a really important uh, conversation that Geddes and uh, Cross have late, late, very late in the movie. And uh, Cross has two really key things to say. The first one, and I just have, I have a drop of him saying those two okay. parts. So, so we'll start with the second part, which you uh, were talking about. I want the only daughter I've got left. You found out Evelyn was lost to me a long time ago. Who do you blame for that, her? I don't blame myself. See, Mr. Gitz, most people never have to face the fact that the right time and the right place, they're capable of everything. So that's what you were talking about there, right? Yeah. So what exactly were you trying to say? That he doesn't, oh, I was just trying doesn't to, care? No, I was just trying to give some insight into that character mm-hmm. about uh, him, I guess, baiting uh, the, Git, the Jake Gitz character with that setup with using his secret daughter. Uh, and Mulray, his son-in-law, to create a scandal, knowing that those skeletons are just dangling out there in front of everybody. He just doesn't give a shit. Uh, it's like no matter what anybody would say about him, 
he could pay enough money or hire enough goons to quiet whatever said about his family secret, you know. Like if somebody came out in the press and exposed his relationship with his daughter, uh, he would just be dismissive of it, it seems. He would almost get away with it because he's rich. He's a rich fuck. So Mm -hmm. anyway, that was the point I was trying to make. What do you think about his comment there that uh, people don't really – most people don't understand that they're truly capable of anything? Well, yeah, that's – I mean, people like – you know, somebody who says, oh, I could never kill another human being, like those kind of folks. Mm -hmm. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Uh, Well, I think that's a human truth. I, and I think uh, as Polanski's life exhibits, uh, Polanski is capable uh, is capable of something that he probably never thought he was capable yeah, of. Yeah, so most people wouldn't say that they're capable of raping a child. Uh, everybody's capable, unless you're Superman, uh, everybody's capable of everything. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, you're not capable of flying through the air and you know, picking up a truck and throwing it at somebody. But yeah, mm-hmm. you're, you're pretty much capable of anything any other human being. Uh, is capable of assuming you have the physical ability to do so. Uh, yeah, and I think it's something that Polanski was aware of, and he placed that awareness in Noah Cross. And it's a deep awareness that I don't think a lot of people, unless you went through a really traumatic event, uh, that you're really faced with. That, like, maybe when Polanski was basically living a vagabond life at 11 years old, just stealing doing whatever he can just to not starve roaming the countryside of Poland during World War II, um, that you really come to realize that you'll do whatever you need to do, no well, matter what it is. It's a nice window into what I call amorality, and I'm mm-hmm. a firm believer in, uh, I guess, the power of amorality. Uh, amorality is... is I'm trying to I'm trying to put it into a nice succinct succinct uh, soundbite, but uh, amorality is is that you know human being that there's it's sort of a I would call almost in like an atheist kind of stand stand it's it's uh there's no real good and evil in the world there's only sort of uh, I guess moral codes that we all live by and some moral codes suit us better than others at certain times. And, uh, you know, I don't know if that makes any sense, but it's... No, it makes sense is that we all agree on a moral code because it gives us benefits and has a benefit of cohesion for society. But these codes themselves are infinitely malleable and change from time to time and place to place as to suit the needs of the society. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that's the, the take that Noah Cross is... Well, Noah Cross is to, an extreme example of somebody who's really freed themselves of any of any preconceived notions of what they need to do. I think it's something that is developed with great wealth, is that when you have success, you tend to, rightly to a certain degree, uh, chalk up your success due to your own personal abilities, that you're an exceptional individual. Right. It's like you're drinking your own bathwater. Yeah, you sort of get drunk on your own exceptionalism and things stop applying to you. And with Noah Cross, things stop. The the general mores of society and the contract of society 
really lost its hold over him a long time ago, and he's okay with that. That's why he well, says, I don't hold myself responsible, because he doesn't need to be... Res- he's, he's no longer held by these social mores. Right. And he doesn't worry about them. He views morality or as sort of uh, like a, a character, a characteristic of small people as speed bumps that uh, slow their progress or slow their ability to achieve great things in in life. And, uh, you know, the way that he deals with the, the, I guess, San Fernando Valley and putting a bunch of farmers out of business and ruining their lives to make a dime, he sees it as sort of a game board where they're sort of the insignificant players on that game board. Uh, he has become more powerful, and they're just losers in a game. So that leads us to the first part of the conversation between Geddes and Cross. And I'm going to play that for you now. How much are you worth? I have no idea. How much do you want? No, I just want to know what you're worth. Over $10 million? Oh, my, yes. Why are you doing it? How much better can you eat? What can you buy that you can't already afford? The future, Mr. Gitz. The future. So here we see sort of one of the motivations that this amorality allows Cross to take. We're saying he doesn't mind running roughshod over the small people because he's got a bigger picture in his mind. Well, and it's, you know, as somebody without a lot of wealth, most people have not a lot of wealth. I mean, you, you and I are, uh, you know, working class Joes. Uh, we see wealth as sort of the end all be all. And when enough wealth is obtained, then we have financial security. We have a freedom to do what we want. That That's kind of the end all be all. But weren't, you can't stand in the, a, a wealthy person's shoes because you're not wealthy. And then comes the power element of the wealth component. And that's foreign, and I don't think you can really see that until you're there. And it's the same reason that I ponder and wonder why CEOs continue to work for companies after their uh, personal bank accounts have ballooned to exorbitant levels. It's like, why the fuck is that guy sticking around? Why are they still doing what they're doing? It's because there's a power component. It's intoxicating. Uh, you got to, I mean, it's like a, probably like a drug, I think. What did Mao Zedong say that or something? Like, power is the greatest drug, whatever. Anyway, but it's true. And it's foreign to most everybody. It's definitely foreign to Jake Gitz in that in that little bit of dialogue. He doesn't understand it like I don't understand it. But uh, Noah Cross definitely understands it. And he's trying to communicate it, but uh, it doesn't really it doesn't really resonate, you know. Well, it's it's weird. It is really an amoral stance, but in in a way, wasn't Cross right that the expansion into the valley of Los Angeles, the sprawl, is a very important part of what Los Angeles is, and it was the future. And without these people who amorally look towards the future and are willing to pound uh, people under the hooves of industry that the future never really arrives? Isn't there always a cost with going to the future? And doesn't it take these sort of immoral, amoral people to do that? Yeah, no, I agree. I I think it takes definitely a significant amoral component to progress whatever you define as progression. We always kind of define it as technological progression. 
less so than maybe socioeconomic progression. Uh, but yeah, all great things are built on the backs of the exploited in some fashion. Uh, you can say that about the American Railroad. You could probably go back to the pyramids of Egypt and say the same thing. Uh, so it's people who make their stake in history are probably more amoral than any of the rest of us. And uh, it's because, like I said, they, they view these things as a game, as a puzzle, uh, as power plays, uh, pun intended, to achieve, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, immortality, so to speak, you know. And they do res- achieve immortality. Right. And just as uh, Noah Cross and Mulray uh, our characters in a 1974 film, they're really based on Mulholland, who mm-hmm. was the director of the Los Angeles Water and Power Administration back when uh, he, they were looking. I mean, this is sort of a, I call it a pseudo-historical movie about Mulholland's development of the Owens Valley in California to bring the aqueducts into Los Angeles to allow it to grow. And that was uh, an extremely... They call it the California Water Wars, extremely controversial move, where they basically sucked the Owens Valley dry in the Sierra Nevadas and ruined the farmland and a lot of the, I guess, natural habitat to build Los Angeles. And then at this point, you would have to wonder, is that a worthy sacrifice? Uh, is that, like we see in the movie, putting those farmers out of work, ruining their lives, uh, taking a significant toll on the natural habitat of that somewhat pristine valley in the Sierra Nevadas, worth creating a metropolis of 20 million in the middle of the desert in Southern California. Uh, I don't know. You know, I'm not really a moralist myself, so I I don't know if that's a worthy gamble. Uh, It depends on what you view as progress, I suppose, right? Depends on a lot of things, Matt. Yeah, well. It's not an easy, there's no easy answer to it. And this movie doesn't really answer it, but I think that conversation really gets at the heart of the cross character and the, a lot of the heart of a lot of the, what do you call it? The pinnacles of industry, the great industrialists and their look, they look towards the future and not the past of the present. Right. Well, I mean, you know, I, I hate so to it's hard. Up. It's hard to hate. God, it's hard to hate Noah Cross to a certain extent. Well, I, I hate to bring up my philosophical nem- nemesis, Ayn Rand, because I really do truly fucking hate that bitch. And wish Isn't she it Ayn Rand? Dead. Yeah, whatever. Uh, you know, but uh, she had her philosophy of objectivism, which was uh, basically a sociopathic philosophy that believed that you're the only person that matter and that your happiness is no, not tethered to the happiness happiness of the society around you. Uh, which is sort of a libertarian deal. Uh, the only problem is is you can't have winner. Everybody, not everybody is a winner. Uh, to be a winner, you have to have losers. And I don't agree with it. I think it's stupid. I think it's uh, exploitative. Uh, it's definitely amoral. Um, but you know, uh, again, yeah, maybe viewing it through the lens of history. Uh, is the only way you really can view these kind of people. Uh, in the here and the now, they just seem like awful, greedy, 
monsters that well, I think we they all are put up with in, it. in the present as well. Yeah, so exactly. it sort of comes comes with the territory. Believe me, there's nobody I hate more than a corrupt Wall Street banker. Uh, although they don't, they're not really visionaries. Maybe that's my problem. No, I don't see least, them as visionaries. At least Cross is a visionary. At least he sees yeah. the future. I guess maybe that's how I judge judge monsters of yeah. of, of, of. Did capitalism. they have some greater? So it's like you can you can sort of forgive Hitler because he had a great vision for the future of the German state. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah, I'm going to go on this podcast all, and say look, I we can all agree. Hitler. We can all agree on that, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to outweigh the good with the bad. And, uh, you know, as the inventor of the Volkswagen and uh, modern industry and modern armies, uh, yeah, no, Hitler had some vision. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know how many people died in the European theater of war, including the Holocaust, but, uh, you know, 40, 50 million people. Is that a worthy toll for having a uh, Volkswagen in your driveway? I- I'm not well, sure. Like a hardcore history with what's his name? Um, oh, Dan Carlin. He 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 would he would say, was the Holocaust a reasonable price for the creation of the Jewish state? I mean, without the Holocaust, the Jewish state would probably not exist today. That's and, true. Uh, it's a question that he put up and he didn't answer. But he said, "Do you ask the people in the current Jewish state if it was worth it, or do you ask the people who were dying?" In the Holocaust, if it was worth the price. It, right. And your answer probably depends on who you ask. Right. Well, it's a, it's it's an it's an altruism question, you know, is is a, a sacrifice worthy of greater goals in the future. And, it uh, works really well when you benefit, but we don't have to sacrifice. And it doesn't work as well when you do all the sacrificing and get none of the benefit. Yeah. No, as I'm the with individual. You. Right. It's tough. It's tough. I mean, it's uh, I guess that's one of the great things about moving through in this single direction through time. You don't really have to answer that question because it doesn't really make any difference if it was worth no. it or not. Well, but except for Noah Cross is answering his own question for him. And he said, oh, boy, yeah, it is worth it to, to do this great visionary thing. Because it works only when you look to the future. It never works when you look to the past. Right. However... In this film, Noah Cross is obviously tainted with an even more sinister amorality. Uh, his incest fetish, I don't know what you'd call it. Uh, well, he raped his daughter. Well, and you get the impression that he's going to go ahead and rape his granddaughter daughter. Do you? you get that? I mean, sure, maybe. It's tough to well, say. You, know, you could see how he wanted her and you know the way he grabs her out of that car after fading yes, away. It's really, it's really you creepy ass shit. You certainly, boy, it's dark, huh? Oh, I mean, you just says like he's like it's almost uh, like pantomime or parody or melodrama the way he grabs her out of that car and, and holds her, her to, to his breast. Yeah, it's ugh, it just creeped me the shit out. That yeah. scene that's just disturbing, you know? Yeah, you wonder. I would say well, he probably keeps from doing it for a solid year and then he fucks the shit uh, out of her. So that paints him in a completely evil light. Is it is it that simple? Well, it, it definitely blacks and whites up the whole film. Uh, if he wasn't tethered to, to that incest uh, subplot, then you would start to question his evilness, quote unquote, in the movie, uh, whether his goal is worthy or not. Uh, but the, the screenplay 
throws that in there and you write him off completely as an evil, evil person. Right, capable of murder and incest, which is exactly well. What look, he does we're all film. capable of all those things. We already we've already agreed to that. Um, I don't know. Well, I don't know. I don't think it's that simple. I mean, it's, it's a good question. Is it? I really I always hate when you rely on these sort of tropes to make you. You said the word yourself, black or white. Two things that don't truly exist in human nature. Um, I, I think if, if if that's really the case, then it really points at a significant weakness in the film. I think whenever we use these tropes to try to draw somebody as purely evil or purely good, which they don't draw anybody else in this film as purely evil or purely good. I, I, I just can't imagine that the screenwriter or Polanski's trying to draw crosses totally black, but I guess there's little reason not to assume that. Well, I mean, maybe it's a little prescient in the fact that this film mirrors the morality of Roman Polanski himself a bit. Uh, yeah. Somebody who did something what we would consider evil in our society and definitely punishable as a crime yeah. uh, to somebody who's produced great art uh, and has definitely suffered many personal tragedies in his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, he has a legacy of great films and in, after he's dead and gone and his crimes are forgotten, uh, there'll still be these films and was it worth the price? I don't know. Well, I didn't so. pay any price for it. I just enjoyed the films. <laughs> but he's certainly a man who can look into his own, the blackness of his own heart, which I think yeah. is a skill that very few people possess. Maybe because they don't have as much blackness in their heart, possibly. They don't need don't to look at it. I don't know. It's a tough tough, well, tough question. Anyway, uh, what else about this film? We've kind of gone into the plot, the morale. Well, there's a second the thing that doesn't make sense to me in this plot of this Oh, yeah, film. that's right. You're going to mention that. There's two things. There's the first thing which we talked about. Uh, the second thing is the motivation of Jake. Why is he so dead set on getting to the bottom of this? I mean, he says several times through the film and he realizes his error at the very end of the film that he doesn't care if they're going to who's manipulating the water supply in order to make money. He doesn't really give a shit that somebody's doing a bunch of backroom dealing and paying off the right officials so they can make a cool 30 million on some land deals. But in a way he does care he's sort of lying to himself i mean does does he care or does he not care about getting to the bottom of this so you're asking what is his what are his motivations in the film why does he put himself at such great personal risk throughout the film i mean the only motivation if he's strictly a man who's been on the police force he worked in chinatown he understand all the bullshit he understands sometimes it's best not to do anything and he started his own private investigation firm which he's making a very comfortable living by all by all yeah, he has like a signs. bunch of junior investigators under his employ look he's bored we can tell that from the beginning of the film all he does is look at spousal uh extramarital affairs over and over again but it's made him a ton of money but all of a sudden he gets used in a little plot and for some reason he wants to get to the bottom of all this and I guess I still don't quite understand why he feels the need to get to the bottom of the land deals, the water business. What's really well, in it for him? Well, look, I mean, he's a curious guy, right? He spends he he's he a snoop. uses his he uses his curiosity uh as his tool in uh investigations. 
And so when you're when you're given a puzzle, uh, you have sort of a fascination with that puzzle and a, just sort of an innate curiosity that you want to get to the bottom of it. And, you know, it, it, it's maybe the same difference as somebody who uh, looks up conspiracy theories on the Internet. Uh, they're not getting paid for it. You just have an urge. Uh, and you can use your tools to sort of get to the bottom of it to figure out what's really going on. Because you were made a fool of, you were played. Uh, and once his curiosity is peaked, he's down the rabbit hole, which he says he's been through before at a great personal cost when he was in Chinatown. Right. And he thought he had learned his lesson not to get too curious. But I'm afraid yeah. it's part of his very nature to be too curious. And by the time his curiosity's got him down that hole, he's in love with a woman. He wants to protect her. He's in deep. Right. And he rides it all the way down to the to the bottom and hits the ground again, just like he did before in Chinatown. Right. Okay. Yeah. I think that's, that. I guess that there were sort of the embryonic bits of that in my head, but I think that I'm pretty. Well, and, you know, to be honest, it's, it's actually a, a pretty pragmatic plot device because you want to get to the bottom of it as the viewer. And so you're willing to go along with each one of his little excursions, uh, you know, whether it's to the retirement home or out to Catalina Island and the Albacore Club to talk to uh, Noah Cross, you just he said, oh, yeah, well, you know, he's obviously he's my well, avatar in this to figure he, out what the is, hell is going on. He is my avatar, but he's a character as well. And I found myself when he was going to the Albacore Club to talk to, to Noah Cross, I found myself going, Jake, why are you going to the avatar, the Albacore Club? Why are you going there to talk to Cross? Why do you why do you want to get messed up in something that's obviously way over your head and outside of your pay range? And in a way, we must have been meant to feel that way. That come on, Jake, don't do this. You're 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 going to undercover a big, you know, barrel of monkeys or whatever you want to say. Yeah, right. you're getting you're going to you're going to dig yourself you go your own grave here, buddy. And that's how I felt watching him go further and further. I'm like, what are you doing? What's the point right. of all this, man? Well, and it's interesting because the the last line in the movie, which is the most one of the most famous lines in movie history, where I forget who says it, his old partner from uh, his days as a cop says, uh, "Come on, Jake, or forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown," and that's almost an agnostic uh, philosophy that's being quoted there in that last line because Chinatown. This movie is really nothing to do about Chinatown in L.A., but Chinatown is sort of a, a euphemism for uh, a confused Byzantine culture that he never really understood working as a cop in that environment. Uh, the clash of cultures, uh, the language was such that there's a quote where, like, what did you do in Chinatown? And he says, as little as possible. Because there there was, like, probably so much he didn't get about working there that at some point you just kind of have to shrug your shoulders and, and dismiss it and not pursue things. You almost have to take an agnostic take about it that there is no real truth here. It's all too uh, layered and it's beyond my pay grade, as they and, say. And, he, and in the end, it's not really even worth it. So he thought he had learned that lesson, that as little as possible, but he didn't. Right. And he had to be taught right. that lesson again in this movie. I guess that's the right. real tragedy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, I don't know what the lesson that he's learning here is, is other than it's just not worth this shit. 
and that uh, power will always be corrupt and rich people will always get their way. Well, the question is, why go into the snake pit if there's nothing for you going into the snake pit? If there's, if he has nothing to gain from it, why go into a den of lions? Um, I mean, I understand if he was a land developer and he wanted to fuck up Noah Cross, he was competing with him, and he's trying to get to the bottom of these land deals, so maybe he could either throw a monkey wrench or, or ride the coattails of this development. I could understand somebody trying to get to the bottom of it for that reason, but there's nothing there's nothing for Jake here. He's yeah, got nothing and, to gain. And he doesn't set up any everything traps to lose. for Noah Cross at all. Uh, he just confronts him at certain points, but he doesn't lay a trap. Like, if this was a more conventional Hollywood movie, one that had a happy ending and uh, more feel-good, uh, Jake Getz would have set up all these sort of traps for Noah Cross to fall. What traps? For I what don't know. purpose? Like some ex, like would have exposed him in front of the press or the newspapers and showed him for uh, the criminal that he is. Criminal that he is. Yeah, but he it, that doesn't happen in the movie. Uh, he, I don't, he, I don't the think. Only I don't, thing, I it'd be tough to do. First off. Well, yeah, especially with somebody as rich and powerful as this guy. But the only thing that he really does is try to get. Evelyn and her daughter, sister out of the country and away. And from that was the a last minute thing. Yeah, exactly. I so. mean, in the end, it's re- his only real motivation is his own innate curiosity. Yeah. Which and is in important. the end, he tries to piecemeal something together and it fails stupendously. It does. It fails. He, he realizes right. everything's crumbling down around him. Once Evelyn makes the reveal about her rape by her father. Which he has, no and idea about. and that he's going to get away with it, you know, at the end. So, you wonder if Jake. I mean, this is if you were, let's just say you fell into this situation. Let's say you were a private detective, and you're naturally curious, and you found out about basically you felt you found yourself in Jake's position, and you had sort of had feelings for a woman, and she ended up getting killed as she does in this movie. And the bastard got away with it and got the daughter, which you don't even know what sort of nefarious shit he's going to get up to with her. Wouldn't you want to sort of just kill uh, Noah? Well, you wouldn't. Would you get away with it? Would it matter? Uh, If you just went up and blew him away one day. Yeah. Wouldn't you just feel like getting a gun and just shooting him right in the old head? Just put that fucking piece of shit. (laughs) <laughs> down. depends what kind of person you are i mean this goes back to our that's our sort of how i feel why I why don't situation. why don't crazy people try to assassinate ceos of shitty horrible companies that uh rape and pillage well, they're uh, crazy instead people. they go after like 13 year old 14 year old girls i don't know that, that never makes any sense to me well, I'm, not sure. why I'm, people... not, I'm not equating me getting pissed at noah for all this business if i was in jake's position to be in a, a would you call being passionately wanting to kill somebody the same as uh, bl- stepping in with a AR-15 into a movie studio? I don't think those are any even slightly similar things. It's one's well, a crime I, of of insanity and one's a crime of passion. Wouldn't you be passionately well, I, I, to kill I, I, Noah? I would just 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 blow him away because he's a rotten, awful person. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, what he has things to risk. He's not uh, he's not that passionate about this uh subterfuge that he's attempting he's he's not 
he probably finds the result disgusting and uh, demoralizing, but he's not going to give up his life for it. You know, mm. uh, I mean, he's wouldn't not it that be better. Curious. Wouldn't it be the world be a better place if people did that? <laughs> a little natural law. I think it would be. I don't know. Uh, yeah, and that kind of maybe speaks to his amorality a little bit too. It goes back to the thought that I think society would work better if everybody got one. You got one, one free kill your whole life. That could be <laughs> vehicular manslaughter. You could just be on your cell phone and hit some elderly woman in a crosswalk. You know what I mean? Uh, or even like an accidental manslaughter, like a whatever manslaughter three or whatever. But everybody got one. So you'd probably want to keep it in your hip pocket, right? Because just in case something have some shit went down, you know, it'd be an easy pass. But in a sense, every you knew that every you can only piss people off so much and only be so much of a bastard because somebody's going to want to cash in their one kill on you. Oh uh, yeah. So I think everybody be in really good behavior if everybody and just imagine all the bullshit in the legal system to clear up. Because you, you get one, you got to just write it off. You know, you wouldn't have to worry about prosecutions or incarcerations. Everybody gets one kill. I think it would make everybody uh, paranoid and mentally unstable because uh, I was, you know, like old boy, where the victim of that whole, uh, the movie Old Boy, uh, a man's incarcerated for 15 years and basically. And the. Uh, oh, man, cr- you. That is such a huge twist in that movie. So yeah, we just sorry, that just gave too. it, just spoiled the shit out of it, but too bad. Uh, <laughs> anyway, but uh, it was done by uh, somebody who was vengeful that he didn't even remember. I mean, that's the thing. You have people who would come out of the woodwork that you may have uh, like ruined their lives just uh, unwittingly <laughs> coming out to do you in. You know, I, I don't know. I would, I don't, I wouldn't like that universe. I think that universe would suck. So nice. we'd also have about 50% less people walking the planet, too. I don't think people would cash in their kill that readily. I think it would only be uh, crimes of the moment of passion and accidents and justifiable homicide, like killing Noah would be in this case by Jake. I don't know. I, th- I think it'd be nice. Yeah. I'm sort of a proponent of natural law to a certain extent. <laughs> I would like to see it. So whenever I become the ruler of the world, these are one of the various uh, reforms I will be instituting. All right. Sounds good. I, I don't know how you're going to do it, but uh, maybe oh, we'll I, I don't have any plans. I'm just saying if it happens. You'll it's, set up a kill. It's an, un, it's an unlikely possibility. Let's be honest. You'll, set, you'll set, set up a kill user app in Google Glasses that uh, can just nuke somebody like through their, like fire a laser. Into their no, no, you got to go out. You got to go kill them yourself. You oh, can't just use oh some, you have to do the dirty work yourself? Well, of course, you have to be the murderer. Oh. You don't just get to press a button and that person dies. You, oh. you get one, but you got to do it yourself. Yeah, I mean, you got to care oh, enough no, about it to do it yourself. You can do use a gun if you want. <laughs> you don't have to strangle them and watch their eyes go dull. Yeah, I can't hire a hitman. I can't do that. No, no, you can't do that. Oh, no, no, man. no. I'd really have to hate that person. Then I guess I'd really have. Yeah, to. that's what I'm saying. Oh, or it'd have to be an accident from yeah. negligence or something like that. All right. Uh, the rest of the movie, the way the movie looked, I thought it looked great. I, I thought the shots of L.A. It always kind of astounds me that they can make a Los Angeles look like it used to look in the 30s somewhat seamlessly. And this movie really pulls it off. Uh, you get you get that impression 
that uh, you know, especially with the old craftsmen and those Spanish bungalows that you see a ton of in this film, the cars, uh, the filming that they must have done somewhere else other than the San Fernando Valley uh, out there in the orange groves. Um, there's a there's a nice light to this film that I guess uh, is sort of sunny and optimistic the way I think of Southern California. Uh, just the beautiful weather. Uh, and then you got this seedy underbelly, obviously, with the with the film's themes. But I just love the look of the film. I thought it I thought it was great. It's a nice neo noir, certainly yeah. uh, shot pretty straight up as as such. By, right. Uh, yeah. By Polanski. Yeah. And Polanski starred in the movie. He was one of the thugs who slit Jack Nicholson's nose. <laughs> that was a great scene. I love that Polish accent he had too. Yeah, and he was pissed off he had to cut his hippie hair off for that role. Oh, did he? Yeah. <laughs> well, he put himself there. Man. Why would he be pissed? Was he pissed at himself? I don't know. Who knows? Uh, Faye Dunaway, hot. I, she oh, kind of geez. flamed I out after they the really 70s, had a better. Right? I really wish they had a better shot of her breasts in that lovemaking <laughs> okay. scene. Because I have the feeling she just had gorgeous breasts. You see them from the side. and uh, But I really would have liked a nice shot of her. She uh, had good... She had a good seventies, like unaltered body. She oh, uh, she was not, uh, you know, a victim of eighties plastic surgery. I mean, she might be now. I'm looking at a picture of her. She definitely looks. Uh, oh yeah, she's been tightened up a little bit, but she's what sixty one or two now. Yeah, something like so, that. And you know, she. I guess she's tried to keep her career going. It's a tough world for the for the Hollywood actress. Especially uh, with all this plastic surgery, people just look so fucking weird. Nobody ages gracefully any longer it's a real shame she uh she was in one of one of one of the great movies of the 70s network which we should review at some point oh yeah that'd be a good idea yeah she plays a a, she plays a real creepy chick in that but she has beautiful uh beautiful jaw and uh cheekbones just absolutely lovely yeah very uh, she's 70 beauty i can't agree with the the eyebrow business that went on that's a shame like her eye what, what about her eyebrows? On, her penciled on eyebrows? Oh, That's a fucking horrible yeah. look for women. I yeah. do not understand. Yeah, that is terrible. I always think of uh, drag queens with that kind of uh, look, you know? <laughs> the penciled on yeah. eyebrows. The, the, yeah. is, is Faye Dunaway a lady boy? Yeah. <laughs> uh, who else was in this film? Jack Nicholson, of course, great. This probably launched him as like leading man material. Uh, he was good in it. Um, of course, John, John Huston, yeah, of course. Amazing. Uh, the guy who plays Paulie from Rocky, I forget that dude's name. Oh, Curly. Yeah. Yeah, he was. Pretty, uh, I love when he goes over to his. He goes. Jake goes over to Curly's house, and he sees his wife, and she's got a black eye. Yeah, I know. Because Curly, because Curly found out about her indiscretions and just punched her, and then <laughs> Curly has the balls to say to your, his wife, "Oh, hey, this is Jake, the guy I told you about." So his yeah. wife knows that Jake's the guy who uncovered her infidelity and ended up. Yeah, leading right. to her getting the shit beat out of her by Curly. Yeah. Yeah. And she just sort of looks at him with dead eyes. It's yeah. fucking great. Uh, and then there's James Hong, who has the only, uh, he's the only Chinese uh, uh, character who has a speaking role in the entire film. Yeah, uh, the, you see Hong around. He's actually, he's in a movie right now. He's in R.I.P.D. Oh, Jesus. That thing got yeah, so he has one of the He has some, one of the, uh, 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 supporting roles. You've seen him in oh, quite that, a few films. He gets around. 
in supporting. Yeah, roles. he was. Uh, oh, I forget. He was the head evil guy in uh, John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China. Mm. I forget his name. He played the uh, immortal wizard that uh, you know, whatever steals Kim. I've never, I've never seen them. I've never seen them. I've never seen. Never seen Big Trouble. Uh, that may be half. No, we got it. That's one of the. I mean, there are so many films by Carpenter. Maybe we should right? break our director rule and just look. There's no director. We, it, it was officially. It was a, the director repeat was lifted at episode fifty. Just neither of us has uh, stepped in to do it. So Which one was? It? Oh, it was fifty, or we repeated a film at fifty. No, no, no. We've never repeated a director, but we lifted okay. the the embargo at fifty. But none of, none of us oh, have uh, pulled the right. trigger yet. Well, so you can feel yeah, we're to too the scared. Too scared. Who's too be scared? If you don't want to be the first, I'm waiting to a hundred <laughs> to, to pull the trigger. If you haven't pulled it by then. All right. Uh, so let's. Uh, let me should probably get into some Ebert. Okay, Ebert reviewed this movie back on June 1st, 1974, so luckily it's not a retrospective on the film. Though I found the review a little dense, and be quite honest, I'm a little perplexed by it. Um, he starts out by saying it's a uh, this movie's a 1940s private eye movie that doesn't depend on nostalgia or camp for its effect, but it works because of the enduring strength of the genre itself. It says, he says, in some respects, this movie could actually have been made during the 1940s. So this review in total depends heavily on the familiarity with the films uh, of Robert Raymond uh, Chandler and Dashiell Hammett to really understand it. And the fact is, I am not really familiar with that genre at all, unfortunately. You know, a lot of this review just sort of goes over my head. I've encountered plenty of novels and film that all uh, pay homage to Dashiell Hammett and the like of noir and, and uh, proceed police procedurals novels of, of that era. And uh, yeah, I, people like to reference them more than I think read them. I haven't read them myself. Uh, I always, like I say, have an issue with old movies, uh, pacing issues that, makes them very hard for me to watch. Uh, I don't read a lot of old crime, pulp crime novels. And I haven't read any actually from the 30s and 40s, but I've read derivative works by new authors uh, that are definitely steeped in all that heritage of uh, storytelling. So, uh, yeah, I, I think to enjoy this film isn't necessarily dependent upon you uh being huge fans of Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler to get, uh, you know, I like updated things. So I, I like an updated uh, interpretation of this kind of story, and that's fine. I, 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 you know, I guess I could go back and pay homage to all the uh, things that have come before it. Uh, but, you know, I don't have time and money are always an issue with regard to that. So uh, anyway, well, I think I, th- I think I might make a point of visiting some of those movies i mean i think that's basically to really understand this review by ebert you really need to be familiar um he sort of sums it up and he talks mostly about this movie and comparing it to movies of uh of the traditional film noir uh crime american crime dramas he said uh 
Polanski is so sensitive to the ways in which 1930 film, 1930s movies in this genre were made that we're almost watching a critical essay. And then he quotes Godard as he loves to. Godard once said that the only way to review a movie is to make another movie. And maybe that's what Polanski has done here. He's made a perceptive, loving comment on the kind of movie, on the kind of movie and a time in the nation's history that are both long past. Right. So he's added to the the catalog of noir movies and hasn't necessarily uh, re redone one. Maybe that's mm-hmm. what that means. Like he's he's just it's paying homage. But it's also kind of dissecting those old films and really extracting out what made them great and then building a movie around it like Chinatown. Yeah. So in a way, if you do want to become familiar with the films of the 30s, these types of films, maybe it's good to see a movie that's made of its bits and pieces formed into the quintessential film noir movie as a neo-noir movie. Right. So in a way, maybe we've done ourselves a favor. Uh, other than talking about that, Ebert talks a lot about uh, Nicholson's performance, which yeah. I was not. It's not my favorite. I mean, I, I personally, I I, uh, I find Faye Dunaway's performance the best. Uh, but he says a couple of things that are a little confused. First, he says, um, talking about uh, Jake, he says he has two indispensable qualities necessary for a traditional private eye. He is dim- deeply cynical about human nature, and he has a personal code and sticks to it. Yeah, the personal I just, I just, code, I, I didn't see that I just don't really agree well. with that. Yeah, I mean, he tries to have a code, but he doesn't. It's, I just don't find that be the most important part about it. I think in, in our discussion, we find that it's his curiosity. He may be cynical about human nature, but his core value is he's curious. And that's well, what gets being him cynical. Trouble. Yeah, being cynical isn't. Uh, doesn't make it mutually exclusive with uh, curiosity. Yeah, uh, You can be dismissive of people's actions, but it doesn't make you any less curious about their motivations. Well, you yeah. couldn't be a dick and not, I mean, a private dick and not be cynical. You can't be critical right. without having some cynicism in you. So well, you have to, cyn- cynicism sort of is uh, hand in hand with prejudice. And I think prejudgment for uh, a private detective is important because you have to understand motivations. And most of the time, people's motivations fit into very classic molds. Yeah, Uh, you're going to have a paucity of information. You're going to have to make a story that fits those bits and pieces you have. You're going to have to use your past experience and archetypes to fill out the the dark spaces. Yeah, but it still doesn't doesn't, uh, stop you from being a curious person. Or some... I mean, there's a lot here, and the motivations are what he's trying to figure out. Uh, he can't quite. I don't know about this personal code. He yet. spends a lot of he spends a lot of time talking about it in the review, and I guess I just don't get it. Maybe I'm missing something. But uh, he does talk a little bit about how the dialogue is sparse. He says that uh, the motivations of of Jake are communicated nicely by Nicholson in the way he plays the character. And he says dialogue isn't necessary to make the points. I guess of the film. Which I think is yeah true. we uh, well we made that comment it's very sparse dialogue lots of uh, action and not words so in a way maybe I don't really have 
a good enough grounding in film history to really appreciate this review, unfortunately. And maybe that's yeah, and and I mean it's a great film because we don't need that history to enjoy it. No, you don't. Uh, you don't need that history. You're right, but it which, certainly wouldn't hurt. Which there are plenty of films that riff off of stuff that uh, only film or nerds would really be capable of understanding, and to their detriment a lot of times. You know, I wonder so. how Ebert felt about L.A. Confidential. I mean, Ebert sort of dogs other neo-noir movies in this review, saying that they're more just sort of uh, sort of ham-fisted, uh, uh, poorly done homages to it, to the, the, the noir category. I wonder how you'd feel about L.A. LA Confidential. I always really enjoyed that movie. I should well, go read Ebert's review of that. It's a good, yeah, it's a good movie. I think, well... There's sort of a, a romance that Hollywood has with itself about its 30s, 40s era, about that time period. Uh, and, you know, it, it is sort of uh, kind of the rise of the, the empire. And uh, where I guess maybe movie making was, it was not so much corrupted as it is now by marketing. And uh, I don't know, maybe there was just sort of a pure notion like nostalgia. Nothing's ever truthful about it. It's just there's just sort of a uh, and this film captures at least the look and the feel of that era, even though it really has nothing to do with Hollywood. Uh, but I don't know. It, it has an appeal that uh, attracts other movies to be set there like L.A. Confidential, which is a, a noir of kind of the same ilk, uh, mm-hmm. you know. But I don't know, a romance. There's definitely a romantic era of 30s uh, Hollywood. Basically, because 30s Hollywood was the only town making any money. <laughs> you know, it was it was thriving because, uh, uh, you know, you crank out uh, films that people could go see for a nickel uh, when they were down and out and had no money in the United States. And uh, it was like escapism that people really enjoyed about it. And so I think people who even remember that era are very nostalgic for Hollywood in the thirties. Yeah. You certainly had a lot of audience, which uh, yeah. always helps butts and seats. So does film noir have to be set in thirties Hollywood? No. And uh, can, segues is, to, is, that, is, is our next movie a film noir? It is. It's uh, with, it's a neo noir. I would call it a neo noir, but it's uh, a Western neo noir. Uh, if that's even a, it has some niche subcategory, but it's definitely a noir and it's uh, red rock West. I want to say 94 when it came out, uh, around there. And that's one of my favorite Nicholas Cage, Dennis Hopper movies of all time. And they're both in it. And Nicholas Cage is playing, uh, I think a perfect Nicholas Cage role, although he doesn't play like a psychotic, like he does in matchstick men or, uh, What's the one? Uh, Bad Lieutenant. He, he's 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 really good in this film. He doesn't overplay anything, and he's not goofy. And uh, he has sort of a reserved nature about it that about his role, and that makes it like that much better. Hmm. And he plays like a dumb guy really well. <laughs> he does play a dumb guy pretty well. Anyway, and uh, it takes place in Wyoming, and I spent a lot of time in Wyoming, so I have definite affection for the film. And uh, it's kind of a sleeper. I don't know if it got uh, a ton of box office press at the time, but it's definitely a good movie directed by John Dahl. So next week will be uh, Red Rock West, 
And uh, until then. Well, uh, that's it.